we're we're gonna just get rolling. I I was just telling I was just telling JJ that um, our our music guy said I I went 17 minutes longer than I anticipated going, which is significant. So we're just we're gonna jump right in. So my name's uh, Pastor Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. So welcome to Northwest Hills. Super glad you're here. Um, our our vision. Our mission is to love Jesus, to live like him, to make him known. Uh, that breaks down in a number of different ways. Primarily in terms of loving Jesus, we're asking that we commit to being here on Sundays. And if you're here, you obviously understand that. It's important. It's significant. Um, we, we also commit uh, to practicing the spiritual disciplines. There are things in our life that we can physically, practically do. Things like prayer and Bible reading and Sabbath and solitude and silence that really we can, we can grow and learn and, and develop in our faith because of some of these practices. And now this time of year is a really good time to kind of take a look at your life and to say, okay, what, is my, what are the natural rhythms and practices of my life? And are there things that I, I should be doing a little bit differently in 2020 that I wasn't doing in 2019? And, and so there's a lot of opportunity for that. Um, I would just, I would encourage you to kind of look at your calendar, look at your life and figure out, okay, Lord, what are the, some of the disciplines I need to be practicing in 2020? There's, there's so many beautiful things that God can do through our obedience in that. And then beyond that, we, we ask that we would live like Jesus, um, that Jesus came, yes, to give salvation, but he came to teach a new way of living. Uh, and so we, we want to model our lives after that. We want to uh, practice the things that he practiced. We want to love people the way that he loved people by knowing people. He had a close group of 12, an even closer group of three. And, and so we just kind of commit our lives to, to making sure that there are people in our lives um, that know us well, that we know them, that we care about them enough to say, hey, what's going on? Are, are you okay? How can I pray for you? And, and we do that primarily through community groups. Uh, those will be starting up in a couple of weeks, in two weeks now. Uh, Chris, I just mentioned that. And then lastly, we want to commit to serving. Uh, the last two weeks of Sundays have been kind of about that idea of, of serving. And so if you were here, great. If you weren't, you missed out. Um, but you can go back, podcast out. There's a lot of different ways that we uh, are committed to serving here at Northwest Hills. Um, so that's, that's kind of who we are about. All, all of that encompassed in this, this heart and this vision uh, to, to live it out, uh, to make him known in all areas of our life. So that's kind of what we're about. This year we started a series back in, uh, back in August, September really, I guess September, uh, a clarity, clarity in looking at the big picture, the big questions of, of who we are as a church, what are we all about, um, who, how do we grow in our faith, and then uh, for the next 16 weeks we're going to be going through this series, uh, going through the book of Romans, looking at clarity of our foundation, who are we, who is God, how can I know him? answering some of the biggest questions that we might have on the planet. Um, so to do that, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1 today. Um, I forget the, the, the page number. Someone told me first hour, it's 900-something, Romans chapter 1, if you've got a Bible. 939? Thank you, 939. As you're turning there, though, I want to ask a question. This is a question uh, that's, that's kind of a big overarching question as we get into this text. Um, it will make sense kind of as we, as we wrap this all up, but I want to try to introduce it in a way that, that is helpful as well. And that is this. How should you live your life? Right? When you think about your life and you think about the options, the opportunities that you have in front of you, and you ask yourself the question, how should I live my life? You know, maybe it's a question you find yourself asking often. Maybe it's a question that you don't find yourself asking very often. Uh, but sometimes there's kind of just natural rhythms in life that force us to ask these types of questions. How should I live my life? Like maybe you're, you're graduating high school recently. 
and you're figuring out, okay, I've got some opportunity ahead of me. What should I do with my life? Or or maybe you're just recently graduated college or or graduation's coming up and and you've got some real questions. What should I do? I've got this time. I've got this opportunity. I've got a a new thing ahead of me. What should I do with my life? Right? Maybe those days were long ago. Maybe maybe you've got young kids and and perhaps maybe those kids are, are kind of in school right now. And so you're trying to figure out, okay, I've got a little bit more free time. What should I be doing with my time? Or maybe your kids are out of the house now, and for the first time, you, you've got a little extra time. You know, the, the weekends aren't consumed with sports and taxiing kids everywhere, and so what, do, what should I do with my time? Or, or maybe you're an early retiree, and, and you've got some time on your hands, and you're trying to figure out, okay, I want to be productive. I want to be useful. Uh, I was just talking to someone in between services. I've recently retired and, and asking the question, Lord, what should I do with my life? Now, all of us can answer the question, what am I doing with my life? Right? That's an easy question. Here's the things that I'm actually doing. But what should I be doing is a very different question than what am I doing? Right? And what's the difference? The word should implies an obligation. It implies a moral imperative. It implies an ought. What ought I be doing with my life? Um, The word should implies that there are certain things that we should do and certain things that we should not do, right? So when it comes to our life, when you're asking the question, what should I do with my life? Sometimes that's that's a hard question to answer. I don't know. Should I do that? Should I do this? Some things are pretty obvious and pretty straightforward. Like there there are some very blatant things that we should do, you know, things like we should be kind to people, right? We should treat people with respect. We should be patient, The opposite is true. There are certainly things that we shouldn't do that are universal that we would all say, yeah, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't cause harm to the innocent. We shouldn't be careless. We shouldn't be racist. These are things that we shouldn't do. But back to our question of what should I do with my life? So let me ask you this. Who gets to determine what you should do with your life? You think about your life and you think about that question. Who gets to answer that question? And then maybe even a little bit broader than what should I do with my life and who gets to determine what to do with my life. Is there such a thing as um, a way to live that is right or a way that is wrong? Like if I do this thing with my life, is that right? Or if I do that thing with my life, is that wrong? Right? And then maybe even a little broader than all that, who gets to determine what's right and what's wrong, period? Right? It's a really important question. Who gets to say what's right and what's wrong? And we start out initially... And we think like, well, no one wants to say that I as an individual get to say what's right and what's wrong, right? No one wants to say that. It doesn't feel right. Although we like to kind of live our lives as if I'm the only one who can say this is how I should live, right? But no one at the same time wants to say that um, the majority of people get to decide what's right and what's wrong, right? You don't want to say that. It's not just a majority. It's not just, well, if 51% of people believe something is right or wrong, that makes it right or wrong. Right? Because if you believe that, then you'd have to go back to early America and say that slavery wasn't wrong because a majority of people believed that it was okay. And no one wants to say that because we know that that was absolutely unequivocally morally evil. That was wrong. So who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? Who gets to decide that word ought? Who gets to decide what we should do and what we shouldn't do? These are big questions. These are philosophical questions that really um, control a lot of the way that we should live our life or should think. And and ultimately, um, to say that anything is right, 
to say that anything is wrong, the only way that we can absolutely say that, and not just subjectively, but objectively say that, is if something exists that created everything that says, this is how you should live. This is how you ought to live. Clearly, being in a church, we would then say, therefore, that person is God. We believe that a God exists who created the worlds, who gives these moral imperatives, who says, this is right, this is wrong, this is how you ought to live. This is what you should be doing with your life. Not only do we believe that this God exists, but we believe that God has shown himself to us, that he has shown himself to us through a history of people, primarily as revealed in his word. And so we, we open up his word, we open up the Bible, and as we look at this word, we say, okay, this is God's revealed will for humanity. This is how God says, this is how you ought to live. This is how you should live. This is who I am. This is who you are. It's super important that we have a foundation that we believe that God has revealed himself through this word. Now, some of you may be wondering, Josh, why are you starting here? Like, I thought we were in the book of Romans. Well, I'll tell you what. If we do 16 weeks in the book of Romans without first understanding that authority comes from God's word, there will be a point in time in all of our lives at some point where we'll just say, you know what, I'm going to be the the person who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. And uh, what you taught in Romans, while that was good for some, it may not be very useful to me, so I'm going to go a different direction. So we have to start with where authority comes from. We have to start with this idea that God who exists, who created the world, gets to say what is right, what is good, and what is true. And ultimately, that's what we get in the book of Romans. We get 16 chapters of God revealing to himself, this is what's right. This is what's true. This is what's real. And here is how you should live. It's a fascinating book. It's a, it's a little bit of an overwhelming book. It's a little bit of a daunting book. I'll be honest, as, we've been, uh, as I've been preparing to, to share a lot of this book, it's one that's, man, how in the world am I going to be able to share all this? But it's one that I think each week that there's something that God has for us, for us as a church, for us as individuals, as we look to who God is and how he has revealed himself through this impeccable book that's really kind of the apex of God describing the nature of himself, the nature of us, and then how we should live. So I want to start out our study by giving us a little background to this um, story of Romans, this letter to the book of Romans. Uh, We're going to each week reveal a little bit more about kind of who Paul is and and why he's writing, but I want to give us some background to uh, kind of set the stage so we grasp and understand what is happening in this book. So in this book, the letter uh, is written to uh, a bunch of churches in Rome. Uh, Rome, obviously a city in Italy, city to this day. It was the epicenter of the Roman world. It was the capital. This is where uh, the Caesar, the emperor was. Um, But it was also pretty far from the epicenter of where Jesus was. It's the furthest point away in terms of uh, Christian activity that we have in the scriptures uh, as far as Paul and any work or any missionary work. And so this was a place that was pretty isolated. So Paul's writing to a group of these churches uh, in 57 AD. In 57 AD, um, Paul is writing, he's writing from Corinth. Uh, He is on his third missionary journey where he was traveling in kind of the northeastern Mediterranean, uh, traveling around, planting churches, sharing this message about Jesus. And he's writing to a group of people, a group of churches that have experienced all kinds of persecution and really just confusion and fighting amongst themselves. So this is what happened in Rome. 
In Rome, if you go to the founding of the church, it was most likely founded uh, coming after Pentecost. Maybe that word means nothing to you, um, but I'll explain a little bit of what Pentecost was and how this church was started. So uh, when Jesus dies, uh, he comes back to life. He shows himself to 500 uh, and more people, and he charges his closest friends, hey, go tell the world this story. Tell the world who I am. And then he leaves. And so his disciples, they get this message in the beginning of everything is Peter stands up at this large festival where there's Jewish people from all over the region. They gather there in Jerusalem. Peter stands up. He preaches this, this message of Jesus. And thousands of people get saved. And then they go disperse themselves all over the area. And a number of these people were from Rome. And so they go back to Rome. And they start these new churches amongst Jewish communities um, for uh, this new message of salvation from Jesus. And so these churches are started. But as you can imagine, there was all kinds of tension between these new churches from these Jewish converts to the originally uh, Jewish churches. At this time in history, there, were, there was a pretty good-sized uh, expat Jewish um, uh, population uh, in, in Rome. There was somewhere between forty and 50,000 Jews at this time. And there were around 13 different synagogues, but there were a bunch of other churches that were planted. And so there was all kinds of division between these practicing Jews and these new Christian Jewish converts. So much so that there was rioting between them. There was fighting between them. Apparently, the new Christians didn't understand the whole love your neighbor thing that Jesus taught. And it was a disturbance amongst the city. So much so that in 49 AD, uh, Claudius was the Roman emperor. He expels all the Jews, both Christian Jews and practicing Jewish Jews, from the city. So they're not allowed in the city anymore. They have to flee the area. Um, so a number of them flee, everyone flees, and uh, Paul actually meets a couple of these people who had to flee, Aquila and Priscilla. You see this in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. So they leave the area, and for five years, there were no Jews in the city of Rome. Well, um, while they were there previously, there were people who weren't Jews who became Christians, who obviously were able to keep the church going while the Jews were gone because they were Gentiles, which is just another name for anyone who's not a Jew. And they were allowed to stay in the city, so they kept the churches going. Well, fast forward five years, you got a new emperor. This is Emperor Nero. We're going to hear more about him in the weeks to come. But Nero, um, really more than anything for economic reasons, he wants to bring the Jews back. So he brings, he allows any of the Jews who want to come back to the city to come back. And so as you can imagine, you've got these churches who've been there for five years. There's no Jews uh, in the churches. They've got their own customs. And then all of a sudden, these Jewish converts who were away for a long time, they come back and they start intermingling again with these non-Jewish people. And there's all kinds of division. You know, these Jews are coming uh, from their background, these religious um, Christian Jews. They're coming uh, at it with all kinds of syncretism, all types of Here's what following Jesus looks like with all this other stuff of, of some of my um, heritage, some of my ethnicity, some of these ancient practices of the Jewish world. And so there's just all kinds of division that's going on between these practicing Christian non-Jews and these Christian Jews. So Paul writes ultimately to kind of say, okay, time out, everyone. What is it that, what is the gospel what is it that unifies you? What is it that you believe is true? Here's the things that matter most. And so he lays out in 16 chapters a giant argument ultimately to say, hey guys, you need to work this out. These are the fundamentals of what faith is. 
These are the fundamentals of what is true. And then ultimately he gives a huge charge that the churches would unify themselves, that they would put down the non-essentials, and that they'd recognize they are a unified body, whether Jew or non-Jew, and that together the church is better equipped when we are to put down our preferences, when we're to put down things that are not central to the gospel so that we can be a unified church. So that's kind of what Paul does. That's why he's writing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the weeks to come. But in the 16 chapters, uh, here's kind of the general flow. There's kind of four main themes throughout the book. Uh, In the first main uh, scene, if you will, of the story, you've got Paul explaining that God himself is the only one who's righteous. Okay, this is obviously a very Christian word. It's a very religious word. It's one that we're going to unpack. But he's saying, like, there's only one person who, who is right, There's only one person who is purely, ultimately good, uh, and that is God himself. Um, The next main section of the book is that God can impart his rightness to us through Jesus. And so that's good news for everyone. We'll get there eventually. That's kind of the next main section of the book. And then the third section of the book, uh, Paul specifically is addressing this ex-pat Jewish Christian community saying, hey, God hasn't forgotten the Jewish community. He hasn't forgotten uh, this lineage and this heritage of these people that he had been working with for thousands of years. He still has something very special for them. And then the final section of this book, some of the sections that uh, are, are very famous, things like Romans 12, is ultimately looking at the unity of the church, um, again, primarily as looking at the Jewish community and the uh, non-Jewish Christians, pulling everyone together who loves Jesus. So that's kind of the four main flows of the book. You guys got it? You good to go? Like I said, I went 17 minutes long first hour. This is a lot of content, but it's good. It's helpful, I hope. So here's what I hope to do today. Um, There is no possible way that we will be able to cover everything in chapter one, not even close. But my hope is every week that we're going to look at the giant theme of what um, Paul is saying, why it's important and why it matters to us. So here's what we're doing um, in chapter one. I want us to understand the general flow of the chapter. Um, I want us to understand Paul's thesis, or at least I want us to hear Paul's thesis for the book. And then I want us to understand um, the main beginning of Paul's argument um, as seen in verses 18 through 32. Now, typically each week I would have us kind of stand up. We'd read the main text. I'm not going to do that each week here. There's just, it's simply too much. It, It would be a little bit overwhelming. We'd be reading it saying, oh man, what did you say like 18 sentences ago? Because what you just said really is contingent upon all this other stuff. Um, But I would encourage you, honestly, like each week we're going to be in one new chapter. Read ahead. So next week, what chapter are we going to be in? Two. You guys are so smart. Look at that. So uh, read ahead. There's a ton in there, but I think it'll be really helpful as obviously I'm going to be skipping a ton of stuff and can't get to the depths each week of where we'd like to. So read ahead. Um, But today, um, here's kind of the main chunks of chapter 1. So Paul starts out in chapter 1, in verses 1 through 7, the primary thing that Paul's trying to communicate is his love and affection and his commitment to this thing that he calls the gospel. The gospel uh, is is multifaceted. It's something that we're going to talk about in depth. But at very minimum, it is the news that Jesus Christ um, gave his, that he was God, that he gave his life. And if we believe in him, we can inherit his rightness. And so this is important to, 
to Paul. He understands that this is not just, hey, here's how you should live. This is not just like a, a, a medicine that, hey, if you do this, things will go better for you. To Paul, this is an event. This is something that happened. This is something that eyewitnesses saw and experienced. And he's telling people, hey, this thing happened. It's powerful and its power can change your life. It's very significant. He goes on in verses 8 through 15. And he talks about his desire to go to Rome. Why do I want to go to Rome? And he, he, he talks about two different reasons. One primary reason is, is he desires to, to reach the rest of Europe. At that point, he had a desire to go to Spain. So he was hoping, okay, if I get to Rome, Rome is obviously the epicenter of all Roman culture. It's the powerhouse. If I go there and build a kind of rapport, if, if I'm able to strengthen and encourage this church, then eventually I can make my way to the rest of what at that point was kind of the known world in that region. So he's hoping to get there. But he also, and I love this, and we're going to camp on this for just a minute. He, he talks about his desire to go to Rome to be an encouragement to the churches there. Again, he'd never met them. He only knew perhaps Aquila and Priscilla from this area. They didn't know who he was. But, well, maybe they'd heard who he was. But ultimately, um, he's trying to say, hey, when I spend time with you, your faith is an encouragement to me. My faith is an encouragement to you. And we pick this up in chapter 1, verse 11, about his heart for visiting. And I love this. He says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually, in, that we may mutually, sorry, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So he's not saying, hey, I want to get here. I want to preach. I just want you to hear everything I have to say. He said, well, one of the, one of the primary desires of why I want to visit is because when Christians gather together, when we share our story about what Christ has done in our life, it's a huge encouragement. And that's one of the things that we want to be about as a church. We, we don't want to primarily be about, oh, come, listen to a sermon, learn all these things. We want to be a community of people who are constantly sharing our stories with each other. Hey, this is what God's done in my life. This is what God's done in your life. And, th- and those stories are incredibly encouraging. I'll actually, I want to share three brief stories um, this week that as, as I'm kind of preparing this, as I'm kind of just soaking in, uh, particularly verse 11 here, these three stories kind of hit me at different times throughout this week. And I said, you know, these are so encouraging that I want to share just a couple of them. So the first story I want to share is um, earlier this week on Wednesday, I got to uh, oversee uh, a funeral in this room. It was a large funeral, a lot, a lot of people, 99% of which uh, were not part of our church at all. Um, but the story of this man's life was incredible. Um, he was brilliant. Um, he graduated with a bachelor's from Dartmouth, a bachelor's and a master's from Oxford, a doctorate from Harvard, and a postgraduate from Columbia. You know, as I'm reading his story, I'm just like shrinking, feeling so insecure. But he, uh, this person had uh, rejected Christ his whole life. Um, Ardent atheist, opposed to anything Christian whatsoever. The last year of his life, though, he, he said, you know what? I'm missing something significant in my life. And he came to Northwest Hills and he gave his faith to the Lord in his mid to late 80s. And he said, I've been missing this my whole life. And talk about a powerful story. It's just like one of those stories you hear someone who like, you've got everything in terms of what the world says you need to get and is missing something significant. Gave his life to the Lord. On the other end of the spectrum, I met with someone earlier this week, came into my office and, and they've been wanting to share their story with me. And they tell me their story and, 
It's one of the most heartbreaking stories you'll ever hear, and, and we're going to hear it from this person at some point in the next few months, but this person basically tells me, he says, you know what, from the age of seven, um, I have been abused by every possible way imaginable. I've been on significant hard drugs since the age of six, seven, right in that. My life, I mean, it's just as horrible, as horrible you can imagine. Honestly, hearing this story, like, my mind's going, like, is this even real? Like, does, is this possible? But then this person goes on to share like how Christ grabbed a hold of his life and changed everything and, and has ongoing issues because of the lot of drug use. But man, just hearing God's grace and God's mercy um, giving this person hope. And they're, they're one of the most joyful people I've met today despite some significant, obvious, both physical, uh, relational setbacks that you can imagine. Lastly, one more story. Um, I, I, was, I was meeting with our new youth pastor, Gary, and he's like, man, Josh, something happened. He's like, this doesn't usually happen, but I, th- I just, I want to share this with you. It's so encouraging. And he told me this story. I'm like, that is so encouraging. You have to share that on Sunday morning. So I made him make a short little video. Uh, let's check out this video. It's so good. Check it out. Good morning. This is a story from exactly two weeks ago today. It was after church. I was driving up to Portland. I went to Ikea. I love their stuff, but I hate their store. And it had me in a bad mood. Actually, I was, I was more down because just driving and through the day, I was thinking about doubts and fears and just having, having those kind of feelings. And so I told God, I, I said, I want to be joyful because of you. And I said, whatever you speak to me, I'm listening. And just a couple minutes later, I walked into a restaurant. And I ordered my food, and from across the room, somebody started talking, and they said, you are a friend, a friend to many. And I looked around. I was the only person besides this woman in the store, and so I walked over to her, and she just looked me right in the eyes, and she said, there is compassion in your eyes. And as she said this, a tear streamed all the way down her cheek. And she kept talking, and she said, you go after the one you love without showing judgment. And then she said, you are Jesus to people who don't know him. This is a perfect stranger, someone I've never met in my life. And I just looked this woman in the eyes. Tears were just streaming down her face as she said this and was blown away and was like, I don't know how you knew to say that. And I was just thinking towards God, Lord, I don't know what to say in response to her. Uh, And so I said, hey, what's your name? And she told me her name. And I said, what can I be praying for you about? And she said, would you just pray? I I haven't been to church in years. I've been hurt by people. Would you just pray that God would shore up my heart? And I just preached one week previously, Psalm 27, 14. It says, be strong, let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. And that, that word that it says courage, if you break it down, the Bible commentary says word for word to shore up your heart. So I'm like, Okay, Lord, I get it. And I shared Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen with her. I was able to pray with her. We encouraged one another. Um, I gave her a hug. And I walked out of there just reflecting, like, what just happened? And it's honestly a moment. I mean, these moments don't happen to me. Just this one is like, this is very unique. But I looked back on it and thought, wow, God specifically used this woman right after I asked him to speak to me to encourage my faith. And at the same time, I specifically had something to share with her to encourage her faith. 
That's awesome. Yeah. I love... I, I love this because I go into Gary's office and, and he almost has this like, I don't know what to do with this type of look in his eye. And I said, what do you mean? Like, that's incredible. This is God just answering your prayers. And he goes, yeah, I guess you're right. It's so good. It's so beautiful. And so I, I think this is Paul's heart when he says, when we meet with each other, we encourage each other. He's not just saying, I've got a word for you. You better listen to this word. This is how you ought to live which he does that very heavily, and we'll get there in about five minutes. But he says, when we gather, we gather, and you encourage me, and I encourage you. And I love that, so thank you. He goes on in verses 16 to 17, and we're going to read here. This is the thesis to the entire book. Um, So if you want to look at this in verses 16, Paul starts it off, and he says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There it is, those two parties that we're fighting. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're not going to unpack this whole thing. We're going to look at just the very, very beginning words of what he says there, but we're going to unpack this in the weeks to come as this is literally the thesis for the entire book. He starts it out, though, with some words that I think are beautiful and powerful. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, This word ashamed also means I'm not offended. He recognizes that the gospel is, honestly, it's pretty offensive. It's something that, that connotates a need for saving, right? So if, if you understand the story of the gospel that he's about to unpack here in a lot of detail, he recognizes that to those who understand it, to those who don't understand it, there are parts of it that are, that are a little bit offensive. It, it, it's, it says that I need saving, that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, and that's a message that's offensive, Right? If you don't believe me, go up to someone on the street and say, hey, you need saving, man. Like that's, that's an offensive message. But Paul starts out very clearly. He says, I'm not offended. And he says, I'm not offended here. And here's why. Because the power of the gospel can change everything about a person. It can make you see the world differently. It can change hearts. It can change lives. It can change worldviews. It can change values. It can make people who are far from him be near to him, not just in this life, but in the life to come. The gospel, the power of who Christ is, can change everything. As we work through this book, we're going to answer questions that have to do with this first opening thesis, like, why is the gospel offensive to Christians? Why is it offensive to people who don't believe? What is the gospel? Why is Paul so bold in saying, I can be free and not be offended by the things that naturally would be offended by? What is this power that Paul speaks of when he says, um, for it is the power of God for salvation? What is this salvation? Is it true that this power that God speaks of comes from only believing? Why do I need any of this? And what does it mean when it says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith? We're going to answer all these in the months to come, but there's so much there. And so finally, where I want to get to today is I want to get to the beginning of his argument. His beginning of his argument as, as to who we are, why we need God, and who God is. And this starts really in chapter 1, verse 18. And so I'm going to read a chunk here, uh, and we'll, we'll start unpacking this. So verse 18 says this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul's argument from the very beginning is something like this. We have a significant problem. It's almost this huge firework that goes off, like like lights flashing, Houston, we have a problem. This is a massive, massive problem. This is a sin problem. And because of this problem, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So what does that mean? And why is God's wrath being revealed? It's, it's, it's one of those things where you read it and it's immediately like a little bit shirking, right? Like God's wrath is currently being revealed. Why is God's wrath being revealed? And how is God's wrath being revealed? Paul answers both of those questions in a series of kind of questions and responses that Paul anticipates that we would ask that he didn't even necessarily write down all the time. So why is God's wrath being revealed? He answers this in two parts. He says this. He says uh, in verse 18, it's being revealed because of ungodliness and because of unrighteousness. So this ungodliness, why is God's wrath being poured out on mankind? Because of ungodliness. And what is ungodliness? Ungodliness is simply at its core a rejection of the belief that God exists. A rejection of God who exists, who created the world, who has authority, who has power, who gets to prescribe moral values. So when we reject God's existence, that's what Paul's talking about with this phrase ungodliness. And then unrighteousness. This would be things, this would be behavior. This would be uh, practicing things that we ought not to do, as he very specifically spells out later, I think in verse 34. And this is why we started out with how ought we live? What should we do? And he looks around the world. He says, people are not living as they should. They're rejecting God who exists. They're not obeying him. They're not worshiping him. Therefore, God is pouring out his wrath on mankind. Well, Paul anticipates the response to this. He anticipates people saying, well, wait a second. This doesn't seem right and it doesn't seem fair. How can God pour out his wrath on people for rejecting him? How can God pour out his wrath for not doing what he has commanded if they don't know that he even exists? Is there even enough proof for people to believe that God exists? And how would they know how to obey him and how to follow him? This doesn't seem right. So Paul kind of creates this argument, and then he answers the question, and he says this. He says, all men are without excuse. All men are without excuse. He says, look outside. He says, look at Mount Bachelor. Right? Look at Mount Hood. Look at Mount Baker. Look at Everest. Look at the Himalayas. Look at the beaches. Look at the oceans. Look at the forest. Look at your kids. In all things that were created, the natural response or the right response is to say, there is a God who exists who made all this. 
Paul says the right response when seeing creation is to say something exists that is A, is way more powerful than me. He talks about God's power and someone who is divine, someone who has a very different nature than you and I, because we know that you and I are not capable of making things like this creation. And so Paul says, when we look at creation, we have no excuse. We should look at that and say, there must be a God exists, and I should obey him, and I should follow him. In 1802, um, William Paley famously wrote about this concept of someone walking in the woods and coming across uh, a watch, right, like a wristwatch. And you find this wristwatch in the woods in the middle of nowhere. And, and what's the assumption when you find this wristwatch? Well, there's complexity to it. There's obviously purpose in it. There's a design behind it. Therefore, it makes sense that there's something that exists that created it. In an argument that's not entirely the same, but somewhat similar, Paul would say, when we look at the world, our our response should be, huh, there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of design to it, there's a lot of intentionality to it, there must be a God exists who is powerful. So Paul says we are without excuse. Ultimately, Paul um, talks about this notion, and I believe that this is just something that I've observed, that many of us observe, is that when we reject the notion that God exists, more often than not, we reject the notion that God exists because if it is true that God exists, then it is true that we are obligated to then obey him. Does that make sense? If God exists, if we know that he exists, then it's true that we ought to obey him. So we make up all kinds of excuses as to why we think God may not exist. Right? We say things or we hear things like, well, there's no way that God could exist. Because if God exists, what do you do with moral evil? Right? And, and, and I've heard this a hundred times. I've, I've heard people say, well, if God exists, who's all-loving, who's all-powerful, who could stop anything, then why would this heinous event have happened? Therefore, God can't exist. Well, that logic breaks down pretty quickly. Because if there isn't a God who who exists, who creates things to objectively say that things are right or wrong, you couldn't look at that same event and say that it was objectively even wrong. If God doesn't exist, you'd say, well, that may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for anyone else. But ultimately, again, we know that that's not true because there are things that are intrinsically wrong, so our logic gets all thrown off there. If we admit that God exists, we have to admit that things happen that we don't know why they happen. And that's sobering to most people. Paul says that the universe screams that God exists and we are without excuse. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived. So Paul talks about this giant problem that we have. Every single person on the face of this planet should know that God exists because of his revealed power and his revealed nature as seen in the things that he's created. But the, the rejection of mankind looks like this. We chase things that were created rather than the creator. So we, so we look at things like our houses, our jobs, our families, our sports teams, go Niners, our political agendas, our, our autonomy, our independence, and we chase all these things that aren't God. We look at anything that we feel like, you know what, I want this, and we chase it. And here's the tragedy in all of this. And this is is one of those like deep wrestling questions that you have to wrestle with theologically. God, at some point, if we chase things that are not him, ultimately will let us. And he'll say, you want to reject my existence? 
you want to chase after whatever else? Go ahead. And when he does that, what Paul describes that as is God's wrath. God's active wrath being poured out on mankind when he allows us to chase things that are not him. Because ultimately, we all have the same desires, right? We have the desires to be known. We have the desires for significance. We have the desires for love. And God's saying, all those desires are only met in me. But if you chase those desires in other things, God will let you, but the result is very ugly, And he goes off on this really long list. I'm just going to read this list of what it looks like when we chase things that are not God. He goes off on this long section about sexual brokenness and homosexuality. I'm not going to talk about this week. We will address that in a few months after uh, this series with a number of other hard questions. He talks about, he says, all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murderers, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, listen kids, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, this is all mankind, we know what we ought to do. We know how we should live. Those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but hear me, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We have a significant problem. The world, around that, we, the world that we live in, when we look around, it's very clear that we have rejected God. That we have rejected his existence in ungodliness and that we have disobeyed his moral obligations in right living through unrighteousness. We have chased things that are not God and God says, if you want to chase that, I will let you. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It is my active wrath being poured out on mankind when you choose with your own free will to follow what is not me. And that's where Paul ends the opening of chapter 1. He says, we've got a big problem. This is the world that we live in. He, can, he obviously continues on this argument to say that there is hope. There, there is an answer to this problem. And we're going to get there in the weeks to come. And obviously, as Christians a couple thousand years later, we, we get a sneak peek of that, right? As, as Christians, we get here and we look at this cross and we say, okay, I'm not stuck in that sin anymore if I've given my life to you. And so today, as we leave here, I want us to just answer and ask a couple of questions, and then we're going to wrap it up. We're actually going to uh, have a time of communion here in a second. But I want us to just look honestly at our life, Christian or non-Christian alike in this room. What are the things that you are chasing? What are the things that you're worshiping? Is Christ at the center of the throne of your life? Or is... God allowing you to chase other things. When you chase anything that's not Christ, the result will be this outpouring of wrath through all those things that were listed. And ultimately, that's super painful life. There's a lot of pain in that. But Christ came to show us a new way. He came to show us that if you follow me, if you love me, if you obey me, if you put me on the throne, this wrath will not be poured out in the same way and you will find fullness of life. You will find the goodness of everything good in Christ and Christ alone. So I'm going to pray. We're going to celebrate that in communion. 
Um, this will be a time where we're not going to pass it. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus on your own at some point, if you're up for it, you can go to the table and take that. And all this is, it's simply going, uh, picking up a piece of bread, picking up juice, and simply um, reminding ourselves that Christ gave his body on the cross and he gave his blood on the cross, giving his life for us, showing us that while we were lost and far from God, he gave his life to bring us back near to him. So would you pray with me as we finish up here? Father God, I thank you for your word in the book of Romans. Um, it is dense, it is good, and it is sobering. As we look at kind of the very first argument in chapter one, uh, as we look at the reality of where I stand and where humanity stands as a whole, we are without excuse. There's not one person on this face of the planet that says, I didn't know you, God, I couldn't know you. God says, in the things that I have made, you should know me. You should know that I exist and you should follow after me. God, I, I ask that we'd be a people who confess, confess our seasons where we chase things that aren't you. And that Jesus, ultimately, as we work through this book of Romans, we want to sit here and just say thank you for doing what we couldn't do, for living rightly, for giving us your rightness and for making us whole with you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.